Let's pray. Father, just in the reading of this portion of your word, we're again reminded of how you are the life-giving God, the God who can breathe life into that which is dead. We thank you that your spirit is able to bring life to those who are spiritually dead, and you can take this word of God, which is alive, and breathe it into our souls to bring us renewed life and new life. And we pray, Father, that uh, this time of corporate worship and gathering together before your presence, Lord, that we might have hearts that hear your word and we might sense the Spirit of God using your word to impart to us, Lord, uh, life-giving and life-renewing power. And we pray that your word would have that effect even this day. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Perhaps you have gone through life long enough that you know a loved one who dies. And as a family, you obviously miss this loved one. And so you go through a time of reflecting. It's a time of remembering this loved one. And uh, for our family and perhaps for your family, oftentimes we do that by going through uh, survivors who go through all sorts of photographs. And we look to those photographs and recalling some of the significant moments of that loved one's life, the milestones, the life-changing moments. Perhaps you come across a photograph of the first birthday. Uh, You come across a photograph of uh, the the graduation from high school, and then a photograph perhaps if they got married, of their, uh, there they are dressed in their best uh, garments of that wonderful day. And then there's perhaps a military service uh, photograph wearing a uniform. Uh, fast forward, there might be a time of a graduate, I mean, a, a retirement party perhaps that they uh, were able to celebrate, or maybe even a 50th wedding anniversary celebration. There are certain milestones in the life of people that we like to focus on because they stand, in a sense, apart from those rest of the ordinary moments of day because these events carry significance because they came as a result, perhaps, of many years of faithfulness and duty and devotion. Certain moments of a person's life, I would call, are momentous. They stand apart. They're, they're, they're more significant than others. And when we come to the second chapter of Acts, we are coming to a record of one of God's momentous moments. If you think of a mountain range that would represent all the great works of God, how many of you have ever been on top of a mountain and you've seen mountains all around you? Oh, it's gorgeous. I miss West Virginia. I mean, we have mountains, but I mean, I've also been to Switzerland. Those are real mountains. But if you think of uh, a mountain range, and these mount- the mountain range you can see out there represent God's mighty works. And certain of those actions of God are like these snow-capped peaks that perhaps are even so much higher you can't see what's past them and you can't see sometimes what's in front of them because here's this such an impressive mountain peak. And I would suggest here are a couple of these mountain peak actions of God. For example, creation. Then there's the covenant God made with Abraham, followed by that great mighty deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, where God showed his power and he brought them out of bondage in Egypt. Fast forward and you get to the incarnation of Jesus Christ where God takes on human flesh, invading time and history with his own son. And then it's Jesus dying on the cross, obviously a huge moment in 
redemptive history, followed by the incredible act of God in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And then we just read in chapter 1 of Acts the ascension of Jesus back into glory, recognizing that he is worthy to assume the position of highest honor and glory. And then we come to the event that's recorded here in Acts chapter 2, which we'll talk more in just a moment, Pentecost. And then one day we're thinking about the next mountain peak action of God would refer to, obviously, the, the second coming of Jesus, followed by the consummation of all things. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to look this morning at what this momentous action of God that took place here in chapter 2, verse 1 of the book of Acts. Follow along as we read over this, one of these mountaintop or mountain peak experiences. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, that is the 120 people, uh, as referred to in the earlier chapter, which is men and women along with the apostles, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each we each hear them in our own language to which we were born. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya, around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. Now, as I'm trying to set forward this event recorded here in, in Acts chapter 2, I'm going to suggest this is a mountain peak moment in redemptive history. This is God taking action in a very significant way in part of his program of redemption. And on that day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the Passover feast, which is approximately 50 days from Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, God the Spirit came to dwell in his people, to empower them to carry out the gospel ministry to all the people of the world until the second coming of Christ. So I want to consider the significance of this great event and do so by answering three questions. And you'll find them in your notes as we go through this passage. The first question is, why was the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost so unique? What's unique about this particular situation? Well, if you know anything about God's program of redemption, I gave you a little bit of the, of the outlines of some of the significant, more significant items of his program of redemption it unfolds chronologically. 
you don't have the, the Abrahamic covenant coming before creation. It doesn't make any sense. There's a chronology. Each event must be understood in the proper order of what God has done in redemptive history. So during the Old Covenant, God promised, as we heard read earlier, with Walter reading from Ezekiel 37, the prophet Ezekiel said that God's Spirit would one day, looking forward, he would impart spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead. In that well-known passage, when he compares Israel to all these dry bones, wasn't that a powerful description of something that's lifeless? A bunch of a dried bones that have been out exposed. There's nothing on them, just dead. Uh, here God promises a new era characterized by this transformation, regeneration. He's bringing life. He says, I will put my spirit where? Within you. Did you catch that? Ezekiel 37, 14. I will put my spirit within you. That means what? Currently, that was not the case. Fast forward 500 years from that moment, and Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry, makes a promise and says, John 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another paraclete, another person called alongside, that he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. He abides with you, and he will be in you. He's talking about something that's yet to happen and he is also alluding to the promise that, and sort of, that was already given in Ezekiel. And here in Acts chapter 2, we find the fulfillment of that promise. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost was an unrepeatable event in the sense from understanding all of God's program of redemption. This is a critical time in which now there's a new era starting where the Spirit of God is coming doing his work in a different fashion than he had before. In the Old Covenant, prior to the time in which Jesus came, the, whole, the Spirit of God only rested on a person for a period of time. So, for example, there were times when you read in Exodus 35 and other places, God would, His Spirit would come on a particular person in order to help that person complete a task. It could be uh, ruling as a king, or it could be building something as a person who was a craftsman, whatever task it was. But after the task was completed, the Spirit of God would leave that person. After Pentecost, however, when the coming of the Spirit came, as we read here in Acts 2, every regenerated person is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's a big change in all redemptive history. This is recorded in Romans 8. You can look this up at some other time. I'll write that down. Romans 8, 9 through 11. Uh, Paul raises this, basically argues this way. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed, and then he means by there, since, if indeed it's true. Yes, it is true. Since the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to to him. What's he saying there is that once the Holy Spirit regenerates a person and that person is united to Christ, the Spirit of God forever dwells in that person. That's a huge change from what has happened prior to that in redemptive history. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and I'll show you another 
example of what I mean by this, the significance of this particular event in Acts chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, written to a church that was very much divided, a church that was, in a sense, characterized by people who were sort of bragging and boastful about certain gifts that they had, and other people who didn't have that gift felt like they were second-rate, third-rate, and, and so therefore they weren't as important. And So there's all kinds of people who were jealous of each other and boasting about certain gifts they had. And so Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, by one spirit, we were all, he's talking about all the members of that church, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, that's a significant statement to make, even though it doesn't sound very clear to us when we first read What are you talking about, baptism? It means to be united to someone. Baptism is a way of signifying that we have been united to that person. And so we've been, now we've been united to each other by the one spirit into one body. So every believer, not just some select few believers, but every believer is immersed into the body of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit the moment that you placed your faith in Christ, the moment that you were regenerated by a work of God. Therefore, we do not need to seek any kind of second blessing that some people talk about in today's uh, wide-open world of theology and all sorts of teaching that is flying around out there. You don't need to seek a second blessing. You don't need a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. It happened to every believer when you were saved, you were joined together with other believers as you were made members of the body of Christ. Therefore, the Holy Spirit indwells each one of us. This is even more clear if you know uh, the teaching of what the Holy Spirit, the significance of that when we're joined to Christ, the Holy Spirit unites us with our fellow believers, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul emphasizes this again earlier in the same book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 16, he says, you plural, not just you singular, but all of you as a church, he says, you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in all of you. As a church, he goes on to say, if any, man, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you people are. I added the word people. That's what you as a church are. You are the place where God dwells. You are the temple of God. So the Holy Spirit then is uniting us with our fellow believers. There's no need now for competitiveness among God's people, no need for envy among the people of God, feelings of superiority over each other. You say, well, wait a minute. Isn't it true that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in chapter 2, but that if you keep reading the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit came to other groups of people too? Yes. But isn't Acts chapter 2 unique? Yes, but they all tie together to show this is a one unique movement of the Spirit of God in a new chapter of redemptive history. Let me see if I can explain this real quickly. There were four, quote-unquote, Pentecostal type of events in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit is poured out, and so each one pertains to a different group of people. This is something unique to Luke. He is trying to emphasize in his writings here 
that there's a question of what's the status of these different people with regard to the church. Are they members of the church, full members of the church, or do we have people who are full members and then there's a subcategory of people who are somewhat members or second-class members, and then there's third-class members down here. No, he's saying all of these different people are joined together in the church, and the Holy Spirit uh, being given to them is proof of that. And I'll just real quickly summarize the rest of Acts here. Acts chapter 2, it's a group of Jews. They are made members of the, of the, of the church of Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit came. Then in Acts chapter 8, it's the Samaritans, people who are racially a uh, distant group of people where there's lots of hatred and animosity, they are then made full members of the body of Christ. That was a radical step, radical step to have them included as equal members in the church. And then in Acts chapter uh, 10, we have Cornelius and people we would call God-fearers, people who are Gentiles in background, but they want to become members of this group, and so they haven't been circumcised, but they have joined and uh, participate in Jewish worship. And so here's Cornelius. He's welcomed as one as he receives the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 19, you have in Ephesus, they too also as Gentiles, non-Jews, had nothing to do with all that. They are made full members of the church of Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit is given to them. And all these comments have to do with answering the question, were these converts to receive full membership in the church? The answer is yes. Yes, they are joined together, baptized into one body. That's an amazing development in the redemptive history because what happened? Acts 2 is all about Jews gathered in where? Jerusalem. And the church is much more inclusive than that. The church is welcoming all kinds of people who come in faith, faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin. Now, let me just think of some practical things that come from this particular point I'm trying to make. The sending of the Holy Spirit on that day in Pentecost is proof once again that Jesus Christ is faithful. He is faithful in the sense that we must understand he is not breaking his promise. That's why the giving of the Holy Spirit, it's an answer to, to the prayer, and the prayer was based on the promise that they were counting on that Jesus said, and therefore, Jesus generously bestows all of these new covenant blessings just as he promised he would. He does not withhold them from people who don't perform too well or somehow don't get it very well. You know, those, those disciples certainly failed a number of times right when Jesus was being arrested and when he was put to death. No, he doesn't wait for people to, to be perfect. The sending of the Spirit of God in Acts 2 substantiates the fact that what? God loves to give good gifts to his children. He gives to us himself. <laughs> the gift of the Holy Spirit is God himself coming to dwell within his own people. He gives us the helper. God never abandons his children and says, hey, you fend for yourself. You figure it out. Do as best you can, and we'll see what happens. No, God doesn't deal with us that way, not in the gospel. God knew that his church would never grow. God knew that his church would never thrive in gospel ministry apart from the Holy Spirit's help. And that's why we received the Holy Spirit. Indeed, every Christian needs the Spirit's power, don't we? 
to defend ourselves against the diabolical forces of evil and the, and the Satan and other parts in which our own weaknesses. We need power. He gives us the gift of the Spirit. He gives power. On Tuesday this week, I started the day by going into the garage, getting my car, turning the key, and I get da 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 da. You ever heard that sound? Means you got a battery problem. All right. So I put the car in neutral. The it sort of backs out of the garage. I just get the other car we have and pull that up beside it. Got the jumper cables. Sure enough, jumps starts great. Come over here. I leave the car running for 20 minutes, half hour. Thought, okay, that'll charge it up. Maybe we'll be good. So I had an appointment. I had to go to the bank, and so I um, I get ready to start the car. Nothing. Da, 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 da. Okay, here we go. Jason gives me a jump in his Jeep, and so away I go to the bank. And guess what? I made sure to back my car in so that the front end is pointing out, because guess what? My car doesn't have much power on Tuesday. And so sure enough, uh, after I uh, got this new key, I was looking, I had to get a new key for this safe deposit box and uh, fill out the forms, whatever. And so I told the lady, I said, well, I'm gonna probably have battery problems again. So I was looking for the guy in the car near me to say, could you give me a jump? And she comes out with her coat on. And she gave me a jump from her big, massive SUV. I couldn't even find the battery in this thing, it's so huge. Anyway, we jumped it. And so third time, guess where I went after that? I went to get a new battery. That car had no power. And in a sense, that's like what we are like apart from the Holy Spirit's power. We have a lot of potential. There's some things that we can do. The car can sit still very nicely, but the car will not drive, the car will not perform as it's designed to apart from the power from that battery. So the same thing is true spiritually speaking. And God is saying, I know you need power. Here's my spirit. You're not alone. And what does the Spirit do? So often we are focused on our lack of strength. We focus on our failings. We focus on the fact that I'm afraid to share my faith. I'm afraid to speak of Christ. I'm afraid to do the things I know I need to be doing to take a stand for Christ. And so we focus too much on ourselves. And the Holy Spirit is given to do what? If you look at this carefully in John 16, one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is not to produce all these crazy ecstatic expressions that cause so much controversy in the church today and take us away from the main focus of what the Spirit does. The Spirit says, I've come that I might glorify Christ. That I might shine the spotlight onto Christ. Why is that so important? Because, my friend, you and I need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. What has Christ done for us? What hope do we have? It's all found in Christ, not in us and how well we perform or lack of our performance. The Holy Spirit draws attention to Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, His promises, and the witness of Scripture is what constantly points us back to Christ. Some of us say, I don't have much power in my life. Let me ask you something. What do you think about all day? What, what are your thoughts saying to yourself? Are you only thinking of yourself or are you thinking about Christ? Are you thinking about what Christ has done for you? Are you thinking about the fact that Christ is now in you by the, by the means of the Holy Spirit? We are empowered in a one-time event. It is unique what happened then. We all now have derived huge benefits from that new era of biblical history. 
Now I want to move to the second question as we move through this text. Because there were some strange and unusual things happening that day, were there not? And we're going to come to those. Why was the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost accompanied by symbolic events? Or what's the point of this symbolism? First symbol of the Holy Spirit was wind. Now, how many of you remember Wednesday night of this past week? Did you hear the wind? Some of you can't remember. Uh, all right, how about Hurricane Sandy? Do you remember hearing wind? Boy, I sure do. You can hear it inside your house. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a very unusual sound. Imagine if you heard tremendously loud wind sound. Now, don't think there was an actual wind blowing this house, okay, with the windows, like the shutters flown open, and here's this tremendous, it's a sound only. It's the sound of the wind, because the word that like is in the text. It doesn't say that there's a rushing wind in the house. It says like a sound like a rushing wind. You say, well, why is this, why is this such a, an interesting symbol for the Holy Spirit? Well, it helps if you know Hebrew. Because Hebrew has an interesting word in which it's translated several different ways, but the word ruach, sorry, but that's the way you say it, has the sound of air moving. And therefore, it is the word which they use for the word wind. It, work, it also is used for the word spirit. It is used for the word breath. All have the same kind of idea. So if you, in Genesis 2, when we go through the account of creation, we read that God fashioned Adam's body and then he breathed, ruach, he breathed into the nostrils of this lifeless man, this dead man. He breathed in him what? The ruach, the breath of life. And so even in Acts 1, you have, I mean, in Genesis 1, where it says the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep. That's the same what? Ruach is the same word there. The point here is this. It is the Spirit of God that imparted life in Adam. So you get the sound of rushing wind. It communicates that the coming of the Holy Spirit would inaugurate a powerful time of ministry imparting new life to those who are dead in sin. New life to those who are dead in sin. You say, aren't you stretching that a little bit? It all begins to piece together. It comes together. If you look at John chapter 3, conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. He was a, a Pharisee, a well-respected, very knowledgeable, highly taught, very well-to-do gentleman uh, within the leadership of the Jewish faith. And he comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want to embarrass himself. He's going to ask questions of this rabbi who's now teaching these amazing things. And Jesus insists, even though Nicodemus is not even asking him, Jesus insists that all the rituals, all this outward performance and these regulations that these Pharisees like Nicodemus have been doing, they will never make him spiritually alive. Never. You can do all sorts of spiritual good deeds. You can do all sorts of going to places that are thought to be holy places and doing all these different gestures toward God that will not make you spiritually alive on the inside. Jesus insisted in John chapter 3, if you want to look at it, verse 5 and following, page 1262 in your pew Bible, you must be born, what, from above. The Holy Spirit needs to do a work in your heart and life. 
He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying you must be born again. The wind, here we go. The wind, why is he bringing out wind here? Ruach. They understood what he's talking about. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can, cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, born of the Ruach. See, the Holy Spirit, that is God's Ruach, imparts new spiritual life into the hearts of those who are dead in sin. And the symbol of this violent wind sound in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost was to signify that the coming of God's Spirit is now taking place. It's the beginning of this new era. Creative power is going to come imparting eternal life in the hearts of sinners through the gospel. And God's Spirit is able to breathe new life into the lives of people who are spiritually dead. One of the great examples of that is none other than a Pharisee found later on in the early chapters of Acts, a guy named Saul, who is so pr proud of all that he's performed and all of his long list of things that he feels like sets him apart from everybody else in terms of his spiritual credentials. Here's a man full of pride and righteous, righteous uh, self-righteousness. And the gospel comes and says what? Jesus confronts him, says, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting me? And brings him to his knees and brings him what? Changes his heart. The Holy Spirit does a mighty work in Saul. And eventually, who, who, what, 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 what uh, evidence of that? Is there a change? You cannot stop Saul, who became Paul. You can't stop him from what? Talking about Jesus, sharing the gospel. Even when they're throwing stones at him, they're getting ready to kill him. He still goes back and testifies of Christ. He has this passion for the gospel that just won't quit. And so I proved my case. You understand why there's a sound of wind? It's because it's really talking about the Spirit of God as the one who imparts life. I wonder if you know that life imparted by the Spirit of God. You ever known a time when God has changed your heart from the way you used to be to the way you are now? And you can see there's a difference in terms of what you were longing for and what your life was like to what it is now. The Spirit of God is able to do that, even today. Let's continue to pray and hope and share the gospel. And if you're here today and you never come to Christ, you can come to Christ. He's the one who convicts you. He's the one who saves you. He's the one that changes you on the inside and encourages you to come to Christ. There's another symbol recorded in this text on that day of Pentecost, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It was the symbol of flames of fire. Now this fire is a symbol oftentimes in the Hebrew Scriptures representing a symbol of God's presence. So a couple examples is the burning bush. Moses is called by God, and, and this fire in that bush is a symbol of the fact that God is right there told, told Moses, take your sandals off, you're right here in my presence. It's the top of Sinai where there's a fire on top of that mountain. It's a symbol that God is there dwelling in that place, now it became a holy place. It is the fire, the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel in the wilderness. It's a symbol of God and His being with His people, leading them. And so these flames of fire 
coming to rest on each of one of the people gathered there on that day, 120 people, is God's way of communicating. Listen, with the coming of the Spirit of God, God's people would always enjoy God's presence. He's going to be with his people. He's basically going to say, you are never alone from here on out. If you're one of my people, you're never alone when you're out there witnessing. You're never alone when you're discipling people, trying to work through the problems and the issues of their hearts and trying to speak truth in their life and trying to help them work through all sorts of messy and complicated issues that go on in people's lives. You're not alone in dealing with these challenges as a parent, as a grandparent, as a friend, as a brother, sister in Christ. You're not alone because God comes to his people. He dwells in his people. He comes and fills his people through the Holy Spirit. And notice that it's not just a select few. It, was, it wasn't as if it was just the 12 who had these fires, little flames of fire over their head. It's everybody in the room. Everybody in the room. That's what? A group of 120 people made up of men and women. People who are apostles and non-apostles. It's leaders and followers. God's making it very clear now that this gift of the Spirit is given to every believer. One of the great truths in Acts, as I said earlier, is that the Spirit of God is given to all sorts of people. Because let's be honest, we all tend to be rather prejudiced. We all have people we sort of don't say, I don't have anything in common with these people. I don't feel comfortable with them. I don't feel like there's a lot of things that we ought to be doing together. And I'd sort of just like to avoid them. And the gospel is saying what? No, break down those kind of walls, break down that kind of prejudicial thinking and understand that God's spirit is designed to bring people who are different together under the banner of Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, if you read the Hebrew scriptures, which I'm, I'm now getting in numbers, I don't know where you are in your Bible reading, but I'm in numbers at this point. And several times in reading that, you get the impression you don't just approach God's symbolic presence in the Ark of the Covenant. You don't just barge in there anytime you want. Because a holy God is dwelling among his people, you have to show respect and follow God's ways appropriately and deal with him appropriately. Now think about that. Without the gospel, what are we told? We are warned, avoid coming near a God who's a consuming fire because he's holy. But in the gospel, now because of the gospel of Christ, that has been replaced with this remarkable truth that God, by his spirit, indwells and is present with and incredibly takes up residence in every one of God's people. So that the holy God that we were always warned don't go near him is now changed things so much by the gospel that now he says what? I'm going to come and live in you. Wow. That's radical. What a great symbol. What a great way to learn in this visual way, what God is doing in this momentous day on Pentecost. All right, let me give my third point real quickly. There's so much in this text, but I'm trying to move through large chunks at a time. Bear with me. Third question. Why was the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost so important? Why is it so important? I'm going to break that down in two ways. For the people who were there that day and the people who are now today reading about it as we are in the scriptures. My first observation about the people who were there that day is, let's be honest, do you remember what they were doing prior to this event? Because it just happened suddenly. It says there in verse, um, suddenly, verse 2. Suddenly, boom, it happened. 
What were they doing prior to that? They had been praying. Remember that? They had been seeking the Lord. They had gathered together in earnest prayer. They were waiting for God's Spirit to come. They were believing that what? God had made the promise, so they're going to pray according to that promise. And now God has granted the promise. And isn't that a wonderful reminder of, no wonder it's important. They've seen God answer prayer in this wonderful way, according to his word. I'm convinced some of us would pray much more if we had that same confidence, knowing that God does answer prayer. So that was one thing I think is important. But secondly, it's important because the Holy Spirit enabled these 120 believers to speak in the languages of those who were gathered that day in Jerusalem who were from all sorts of towns within the Roman Empire. Notice in verse 4, speaking in other tongues is so much different from what you hear modern Pentecostals teach. Modern Pentecostals are encouraging people to bear witness that you have, quote-unquote, been baptized or had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and therefore you speak in some sort of unknown tongue that has no, no translatable ability at all. It's just speak this babbling kind of sound. But notice that the effect of the Holy Spirit's coming was not to speak gibberish, not to speak some sort of heavenly language, quote-unquote. That's not what happened here on this occasion. The text is very clear that these believers spoke known languages of the people who represented all these different areas as they had gathered now into Jerusalem from those faraway towns and villages and localities. Look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 2. The crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them, that is, the pilgrims that came from north or south or east or west, it's all, if you get your map out, you can look. They come from all those different directions. They were hearing them speak in his own language. And the word there is dialect in Greek, from the word we get dialect. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans did not have a very good reputation as being highly educated and astute and highly intellectual people. They were known to be people who had a slur or a very unusual way of talking, an accent. As they remember Peter, you know, when he was there uh, on the night Jesus was betrayed, you know, you could hear this accent. Well, that's what they were known for. And they said, how can they speak these languages? We hear our languages. How is it that we each hear them in our own language, dialect again, to which we were born? And skip down to verse 11. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. All these different countries, all these different ethnic groups, they all heard it and understood it in their own language. These believers, the 120, did not need to be coached. They did not need to be taught how to speak these dialects. The Spirit of God enabled them to declare in the languages of the people that day the mighty deeds of God in the gospel. In Acts 2, we have God, in a sense, reversing the curse that it took place in Babel. You say, what are you talking about, Babel? What, where'd you get that? If you know your Bible, Genesis chapter 11, right before the promise given, the Abrahamic promise given to Abram, God noticed that there was this building project going on with these people in Babel, and they're all working hard together. They're all unified, and they are throwing their energy and their time into building this tower. 
not so that they could honor God, but so that they could make a name for themselves and say, look at us, look what we've accomplished. We are somebody. We have become significant because look what we've done. They're seeking to do that apart from relationship with God. And so here's this tower they're trying to build. In the middle of that building project, what happens? Well, it all stopped. Not because a crane fell and they had to do inspections. No, it, was be, it stopped because no one could understand the other workers because God confused their languages. One was speaking this language, another spoke a language, another spoke another language. They couldn't understand what each one was trying to say. And so therefore they're like, ah, this is not going anywhere. I'm quitting. Because of their language confusion, which God brought about, it made them disperse. And that is what happened as a result of the Babel, in a sense, the curse of that Babel attempt. And so in Acts 2, instead of dispersing those who sought to make a name for themselves apart from God, God by His Spirit is beginning this creation of a new people who are unified by God through Jesus Christ. And the gospel is what unifies them despite all of their diversity, despite all their language differences. They are joined together as one people in Christ. So what God is trying to say here in this amazing text where the languages are being spoken is this. God is concerned that his gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what Christ has accomplished in the great acts of grace and power shown by Christ in his life, his death and resurrection. It is that gospel which changes people's hearts. He is so concerned and burdened that everyone be able to hear that good news that every person in the world understand what Jesus has done for them as helpless, condemned sinners. And so it's God who longs for all the language-speaking groups of the world to understand the gospel in their own dialect, to have the opportunity to respond to the gospel call, to believe on Christ, and to repent of their sins. A week ago Wednesday, we showed a film in our church uh, and I realize it's a weird night. It was a night when school was out and different things, and we may not have publicized it too well. It's a, it was a film about a guy who went and visited India as a mission uh, leader, and uh, he had just lost one of his missionaries uh, in the next door uh, country of Afghanistan. There was a person martyred for Christ, taking just like, just like you're reading Acts again, people dying for their faith. And so this mission leader went into India and he's giving an observation of what he observed and what he noticed and the, and the spiritual needs of this huge country. Almost a billion people. It was a powerful film. And showing, he said he kept walking away sensing a burden for these people who are bowing down before these statues. All these statues of different gods. They believe, you know, Hindu, there's so many different gods. There are thousands and thousands of different gods. All these little statues. And he's thinking, how sad that they give such loyalty and devotion to these statues. And I thought to myself, you know, here's the missions committee trying to st stimulate and encourage the, 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 the vision of the, of the many people, the millions of people around the world who are lost. And there's a handful of people there watch, of us watching it. And I thought to myself, what an opportunity was missed. By the way, you can watch the DVD. It's in the church library. I urge you to do so. There's nothing inappropriate about it at all. It's just very, very compelling. It's very... Uh, helpful, it's very burdening to begin to realize how many lost people caught in their sin. Anyway, then he goes to say that I came across this quote. 
Derek Thomas says this, those who do not have a heart for world evangelization, those who do not have a heart for mission, do not have the heart of Christ Jesus. Because it is Christ who has a heart's burden for the world and for the, for the, for the millions who still have no one to tell them. So to be filled with the Spirit does not lead to out-of-control behavior and babbling and all kinds of strange, erratic, uh, uh, weird kind of responses that people make. Some people used to think years ago that you show that you've been baptized or filled with the Spirit when you're laying on the ground laughing hilariously or making animal sounds. I'm like, where, where do you come up with this stuff? That's not what this is all about. The evidence of that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and following is, the evidence of being filled with the Spirit is to be worshipful and thankful and loving and submissive and making known the glories of God's grace in the gospel. All right, I'm almost done. In your notes, I'm trying to show and summarize how does this make a difference in being important for the people of today? That was the people of the first century. Well, I would suggest this helpful quote by John Stott. He's a great pastor and commentator, very clear, and he comes up with this very helpful quote in which he summarizes, why is it so important, this giving of the Holy Spirit? He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. There can be no understanding without the Spirit of truth. There can be no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. There is no Christ-likeness of character apart from His fruit. There is no effective witness without His power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. Dead. The Spirit is so important. He is critical in this, in this area of need for all the people of God like you and me. And his coming has changed things radically. Let me just end with this one story. Many of you would know that the Nile River, one of the great rivers of the world, massive river, uh, runs um, north, sorry, south to north and uh, through the country of Egypt. And years ago, back in the late 1960s, the leader of the Egyptians, the, the president, decided, he says, we're going to put and we're going to build a massive dam on this river and we're going to use it to begin to uh, make hy uh, hydroelectric power. It took them many, many years and by the time of 1970, they built a 400 foot high and 11,000 feet wide, massive hydroelectric dam on the Nile River. And during that time, of course, people are depending on the water downstream, right? For years, that water has been a source of life to them. And uh, they wash in it, they drink it, they're giving their crops, you know, this kind of uh, 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 irrigation, all those kind of things. They were using it to grind their grain, using it as in mills, the, the, the water power. The point is this, many people were helped by that river water, but once they opened the valves and let the water go through all the turbines and 12 of these turbines began to generate electricity, which were generating approximately uh, a 10 billion kilowatt per hour energy. It was enough to provide electricity for every city in the country of Egypt. 
What a huge difference once they turn that thing on. Power now was available in a whole radically way to the, all the people needed. Not just the people who lived along the river, downriver, but everybody could benefit from that power. That is the point of Pentecost. There is spiritual power for all the people of the earth to know Christ, to have a new life, to have a life changing through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather today to reflect on this momentous mountaintop action that you took, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to have a fresh realization of the wonders of your grace, that we might appreciate once again, Lord, in a new way, how generous of a God you are, that you see us in our need for the Holy Spirit, and you gave your Spirit so generously, so graciously. Thank you that you make the Spirit available to all of your people, not just for a select few, not just for the people who have their act together, but the Holy Spirit is given to all of us to unite us to Christ, to point us to Christ, to empower us to live for Christ, and to impart to us a new way of living. Holy Spirit, I pray that you might, by your powerful work, that you might impress upon all of us here today that there is a, your resources are available to any who come to Christ. I pray that you would help those who become so focused on their own failings, their own inadequacies, their own weaknesses. Lord, pray, I pray that you'd help them to have their eyes put back onto Christ. I pray for those, Lord, who are afraid to speak of Christ, those who are hiding in the shadows, those who are uh, afraid of the fallout of what may happen if they begin to witness for Christ. Lord, I pray that you would empower them with courage and boldness, just like you did the first century people who were there that day on Pentecost. We pray, Lord, that you begin to help them, some of us who are having a hard time having victory over certain sins in our lives. Lord, may the Holy Spirit draw us to Christ and help us to find in him a new power to overcome struggles of our flesh. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, who's not a believer, I pray that they might, by your Holy Spirit, have begin to understand the weight of their sin, that they might begin to understand through his convicting work that they have no righteousness of their own. They need a righteousness from Christ that we all have broken your law again and again and again. Lord, I pray that you would draw many to faith in Christ. May you impart a new life in, in those who are here today who do not know you. Holy Spirit, have your way among us, we pray. Empower us, fill us, and use us. For the glory of your great name, we pray. Amen.